1: Hello, friend, and welcome back to Foul Play in the second and final episode in our series about the Vanishing Blonde, also known as Ina Bunista, the 21 year old Russian girl who became the subject of one of the world's most incredible mysteries. Between 3 41 a.m. and around 8 30 a.m., nobody, not even Ina Bunista, knew where she was. The hotel cameras hadn't captured her exit. There were no signs of break-ins or Ina falling out of her window. The woman had simply vanished from her room and appeared hours later, beaten up in a cul-de-sac in Florida. It almost seemed like a magic trick. Private investigator Ken Brennan meticulously studied the video footage, accounting for every guest's movement in and out of the hotel. As he eliminated potential suspects one by one, Brennan's attention was drawn to a tall, broad-shouldered man seen entering the elevator with the victim. This man later left the hotel with the wheeled suitcase and returned without it. With more questions than answers, Brennan now focuses on unraveling the connection between this mysterious man and the attack on the woman. The question came back to nag him. Why would the man remove his luggage from the hotel early in the morning, not check out, and then return to his room in less than an hour without it? He watched the video again and again and again, Brennan paid close attention only to the bag this time and saw that the wheels of the bag got stuck in the gap between the elevator car and the lobby floor. He had to give it an extra tug to release it. And that tug told Brennan everything he needed to know.
2: November 17, 17th, 2005. Ken Brennan gathered the hotel's owners, insurance adjusters and lawyers in a meeting. He presented his findings, pointing to the large man on the laptop screen, and boldly claimed, This is the guy who did it. The victim is inside that suitcase. (laughs) Laughter filled the room. How did you reach that conclusion? Someone questioned. Brennan explained his meticulous process of elimination, which ultimately led him to the man on the screen. Skeptical, they reminded him that the victim claimed two white men had attacked her. Brennan remained firm, insisting that this was the perpetrator, and asked for resources to pursue him. He argued that it would benefit them by proving the attacker wasn't a hotel employee, thus reducing the hotel's liability in the civil suit. So, reluctantly, they agreed to let Brennan continue his investigation. The hotel records offered no help, so Brennan returned to the video footage. He examined every appearance of the suspect, eventually noticing him with another man, wearing a white t-shirt with the word Mercury on it. In one of the videos, the back of the t-shirt revealed the word Virado. After some research, Brennan found that Virado was an outboard engine manufactured by Mercury Marine, a subsidiary, of the Brunswick Corporation. Brennan contacted Mercury Marine's head of security, Alan Sperling, but learnt that their employees had stayed in a different hotel. Sperling mentioned that the t-shirts were given away at the boat show's food court. Brennan then reached out to Centreplate, a company responsible for the food court, and discovered that they had housed some employees at the Regency during the boat show.
1: After more investigation, Brennan learned that the large man with glasses had been hired to work at Zephyr Field, home of the New Orleans Zephyrs in Metairie. The problem was the Hurricane Katrina had devastated the area just months earlier, scattering the community and making it even more challenging to track him down. But Brennan remained persistent. The hotel insurers hoped Brennan would find evidence that Ina was a prostitute and had been assaulted by a client, which would have reduced their liability. But Brennan was more focused on finding out the truth, whatever the truth was. Detective Foote, having provided Brennan with all the information he had, focused on cases with more promising leads. Nevertheless, Brennan couldn't shake the image of the confident, large man with glasses, possibly searching for his next victim. The New Orleans lead was both a blessing and a curse. Brennan had a friend in the city's police force, Captain Ernest Dima, who had helped him identify the man as Mike Jones. But when Brennan called, he learned that Jones no longer worked at Zephyr Field and had disappeared. Now with the name in hand, Brennan found records of a Mike Jones, who had stayed at the hotel during the attack. His visa card was under the name Michael Lee Jones, but the card had been canceled, and the address was outdated. Brennan couldn't get the Miami-Dade police involved, because the evidence was still insufficient. Like he had so far, he would have to do this alone. Brennan guessed that if Jones were the attacker, he wouldn't give up his job, which conveniently allowed him to travel from city to city. When he learned that Jones no longer worked for Centerplate, Brennan compiled a list of the company's top competitors and began contacting them, one by one. One company, Ovations, was based in Tampa, and Brennan decided to visit them in person. While at ovations, Brennan asked the company's COO about a large, bespeckled black man named Michael Lee Jones. The executive refused to provide any information without a subpoena, which made Brennan feel he was on the right track. The subpoena
2: was merely a formality now. He obtained it and found that ovations indeed employed a Michael Lee Jones, who was currently working in Frederick, Maryland. As the sun set on an early spring evening in the Appalachian foothills, Michael Lee Jones stood behind a barbecue counter at the Harry Grove Stadium. Detective Foote, a native Floridian, unaccustomed to the cold, shivered underneath his coat, still determined to bring justice to Ina. Detective Foote had been contacted by Brennan, who provided him with information about Jones. Although Foote admired Brennan's determination, he remained doubtful knowing the case had long odds. However, with Jones as the first legitimate lead in a long time, Foote had to pursue it. Department protocol required detectives to travel in pairs when confronting suspects out of town, so Foote partnered with another detective who was already heading to the Washington suburbs. Together they drove an hour and a half to meet Jones in person. Foote had called Jones earlier that day, keeping the conversation vague. He mentioned an incident in Miami during the boat show and confirmed Jones had been working there. Jones, polite and forthcoming, agreed to meet Foot and provided directions to the ballpark. Upon meeting, the detective found Jones to be a towering, broad and physically imposing man. Yet his demeanour was remarkably soft-spoken, gentle and seemingly passive. Jones, wearing an apron and clear-rimmed glasses, appeared well-respected by his co-workers. He led Foote and the other detective to a picnic area outside the stadium to talk. Foote asked Jones about his encounters with women in Miami. Jones admitted to one hookup with a white German woman, but denied any involvement with anyone at the airport regency. Foote wasn't convinced Jones was their suspect. The large man seemed truthful, with no signs of guilt. With the temperature dropping, Foote cut to the chase, asking Jones if he had committed the rape. Shocked, Jones vehemently denied any involvement. When Foote asked for a DNA sample, Jones agreed without hesitation. This willingness further convinced Foote that Jones was not their man. He collected the DNA swab and reported the whole conversation back to Brennan, who remained confident Jones was the culprit. Foote didn't see what Brennan saw and dropped it. But months later, the DNA report returned. Jones was a
1: match. In our ongoing journey dissecting real-life mysteries, I've found a perfect companion in a game that not only captivates, but also lets me step into the shoes of a detective in the glamorous 1920s, June's Journey. As someone who's delved deep into the game, playing through the intriguing scenarios of June Parker, I can personally vouch for its immersive experience. In June's Journey, you unravel the mystery of June Parker's sister's murder. Each scene is a visual and intellectual puzzle, with hidden clues scattered across beautifully crafted locations. What I've enjoyed most is the depths of the storyline. Each chapter peels back a layer of this thrilling narrative, revealing danger, mystery, and romance. Besides the allure of solving mysteries, the game lets you design and customize your own luxurious estate island. Building my estate has been a delightful escape, offering a creative break from the intense narratives we tackle on the podcast. For those of you who enjoy the blend of history, mystery, and narrative depth we explore on this podcast, June's Journey offers a chance to live out those elements in a beautifully interactive setting. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android, and join me in this ongoing quest to uncover hidden truths and solve complex mysteries. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How's your social battery holding up? Mine's been draining lately, consumed by the darkness of true crime tales. But amidst the shadows, it's crucial to remember to prioritize our mental well-being. Just like unraveling a twisted plot, therapy helps me untangle the knots in my mind. It's about gaining clarity, finding strength, and reclaiming control over your life. Considering therapy BetterHelp offers a lifeline in the darkness. It's completely online, giving you the freedom to seek help in your own terms. And with a simple questionnaire, you can be matched with a licensed therapist who understands your unique struggles. Find your social sweet spot with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Fowl today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Fowl, F-O-U-L. In October, Brennan traveled to Frederick to join Foote in apprehending the suspect. It had been nearly a year since Brennan took on the case. Jones was officially charged with numerous felonies, including rape, kidnapping, and the severe assault of a young woman. Sitting in a small chair in the Frederick Police Department interrogation room, Jones appeared dejected his massive frame draped in an oversized Baltimore Ravens t-shirt. He constantly denied all allegations in a gentle voice, unusual for a man of his size. He adamantly claimed he would never harm a woman, and though he acknowledged having sex with the victim, he insisted she was a sex worker and he had paid her $100 for the night. When confronted with pictures of the victim's battered face, Jones pushed them away, maintaining his innocence. Brennan questioned him about the odd timing of removing his suitcase from his hotel room, and Jones offered a vague explanation. Jones' story wavered when Brennan pointed out the extra effort needed to lift the suitcase from the elevator, leading Jones to remember... He also had several large books inside, but when he was asked to name any of the books in the bag, Jones couldn't provide a single title. There was nothing they could do except let the case go to trial. That, however, proved to stack the cards against Ina Buniska. Brennan's theory was that after sexually assaulting Ina in his room, Jones placed her in his suitcase exited the hotel unnoticed by night manager George Perez and drove away at 5.31 a.m. According to this theory, Jones disposed of the body and returned to the hotel at 6.21 a.m., leaving just enough time to begin his workday at the boat show. He casually entered the hotel restaurant at 7.59 a.m., joined a friend for breakfast and then headed to the parking lot to leave for work. Though a good theory, Ina refused to accept it. She insisted that the attack happened in her room and that it was perpetrated by multiple white men, not a single African-American man. But it was also worth considering that her faint recollections could be attributed to the severe head injuries she sustained or the possibility of that Jones had drugged her. Regardless, her unreliable testimony weakened her credibility as a witness.
2: Aside from the circumstantial evidence in the surveillance footage, the case also began to weaken. The DNA match only confirmed that sexual activity had occurred. It couldn't confirm if that was rape. Jones never confessed during interrogations with Brennan or Foote, and his suitcase was never found. And, just like his rental car, Jones' hotel room had been cleaned several times in the year before he was ever identified, erasing any remaining evidence. They couldn't prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt, which meant Ina's assaulter had every opportunity to go free. Despite all of that, Jones pleaded guilty to a bunch of charges in exchange for a reduced sentence. Because he complied with the police, he was given only two years in prison. Understandably, Ina was devastated. So Brennan had to approach this from another angle. He had to find evidence that Jones wasn't who he claimed to be, that he had a dark side that was capable of causing harm, and that there were more women than Ina. He was aware that Jones's job took him to cities across the nation, providing ample opportunities to encounter new women and then vanish. Brennan urged the Miami-Dade police to submit Jones's DNA to the Combined DNA Index System, which is the FBI's national database. They did that in late 2006, and within a few years, three new matches emerged for Jones's DNA. One case in Colorado Springs and two cases in New Orleans. In 2007, Detective Terry Thrumston of the Colorado Springs Police Department's Sex Crime Unit received a call informing her of the combined DNA index systems match linking Jones to a December 2005 cold case.
1: In that incident, 41-year-old Jennifer Rosler was spotted leaving a convenience store just moments before her attack. According to Detective Thrumston, the woman was alone, walking at around 2.30 or 3 o'clock in the morning. Jones had been working concessions at the Colorado Springs World Arena at the time. This was approximately nine months after Ena's 2005 Miami attack, and about three months after Jones left New Orleans following Hurricane Katrina. He offered her a ride to her apartment, and when she was dropped off, he asked for a glass of water. She let him into her home, and he sexually assaulted her. Rosler's choice to let the man into her apartment created doubts about whether the sex was consensual. So the case remained cold until the system match identified Jones in two other cases. One involved a woman who asked to be called Rachel, who visited New Orleans for Jazz Fest in May 2003. She reported that a man had offered her a ride and then drove her to a secluded area and assaulted her. Rachel made a composite sketch with New Orleans Police of the man who assaulted her, which Detective Thrumston said looked almost identical to Michael Lee Jones. Lorraine Gutrow, another victim from New Orleans, also shared a similar story. She informed the police that she had been sexually assaulted in June 2003 by a similar-looking man who offered her a ride home. According to her, Jones had pinned her and put a knife to her throat, threatening to kill her if she ever went to police. Both New Orleans cases were Remained unsolved for years until the system matches surfaced. In July 2008, as Jones's prison sentence in Florida for Ena's case neared its end, he was extradited to Colorado Springs to face trial for assaulting Rosler. When the trial began in 2009, prosecutors called on Ena and the New Orleans victims to testify. Jones pleaded not guilty to the sexual assault case in Colorado, and his lawyers tried to argue that sex with Rosler was consensual. But the jury didn't accept it, given the DNA matches from multiple women, all pointing to sexual assault.
2: It took the jury barely any time to return with their verdict. Guilty. Jones received a sentence of 24 years to life for the attack on Rosler and Ina Budnistka finally got the closure she deserved. As we come to the end of this chilling episode, we find some sense of closure with Michael Lee Jones behind bars, unable to harm others. The courage of Ina, Jennifer Rosler, Rachel and Lorraine Gattreau, led to the unmasking of a dangerous predator. Their stories are a testament to the power of perseverance, hope, and the relentless pursuit of justice. Thank you for joining us on this journey. If you've enjoyed this episode of Foul Play, we invite you to subscribe to our podcast. Each episode dives deep into the compelling cases, exploring the darkest corners of criminal minds and the tireless work of those who bring them to justice. Tune in next time as we unravel another gripping case right here on Foul Play.
0: This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming...